irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to L.A. Talk Radio. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. Darwin's voyage on the HMS Beagle is known as the second voyage of the HMS Beagle. From December 27, 1831, to October 2nd, 1836, for five years, was the second survey expedition of HMS Beagle under Captain Robert Fitzroy, who had taken over command of the ship on its first voyage after the previous captain committed suicide. More on that later. Fitzroy had already thought of the advantages of having an expert on geology on board and sought a gentleman naturalist as a companion while the ship was at sea. The young graduate, Charles Darwin, had hoped to see the tropics before becoming a parson and accepted the opportunity. By the end of the expedition, he had already made his name as a geologist and fossil collector, and the publication of his journal, which became known as The Voyage of the Beagle, gave him wide renown as a writer. The Beagle sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, then carried out detailed hydrographic surveys around the coasts of southern part of South America returning via Tahiti and Australia after having circumnavigated the Earth. While the expedition was originally planned to last two years, it lasted almost five. Darwin spent most of his time exploring on land, three years and three months on land, 18 months at sea. Early in the voyage, 
he decided that he could write a book about geology, and he showed a gift for theorizing. At Punta Alta, he made a major find of gigantic fossils of extinct mammals, then known for only a very few specimens. He ably collected and made detailed observation of plants and animals, which results that shook his belief that species were fixed and provided the basis for ideas which came to him when back in England and led to his theory of evolution by natural selection. The main purpose of the second voyage of the HMS Beagle was the expedition was to conduct a hydrographic survey of the coasts of the southern part of South America as a continuation and correction of the work of previous surveys to produce nautical charts showing the navigational and sea depth information for the Navy and for commerce. An Admiralty Memorandum set out the detailed instructions. The first requirement was to resolve disagreements in the earlier surveys about the longitude of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, which was essential as the base point for meridian distances. The accurate marine chronometers needed to determine longitude had only become affordable since 1800. The Beagle carried 22 chronometers to allow corrections. The ship was to stop at specified points for four-day rating on the chronometers and to check by astronomical observations. It was essential to take observations at Puerto Praia and Fernando de Noroa to calibrate against the previous surveys of Owens and Foster. It was important to survey the extent of the Aberholo's archipelago reefs shown incorrectly in Rosen's survey, and then proceed to Rio de Janeiro to decide the exact longitude of Villagagon Island. The real work of the survey was then to commence south to Rio de la Plata with return trips to Montevideo for supplies. Details were given of priorities, including surveying Terra de Fuego and approaches to harbors on the Falkland Islands. The west coast was then to be surveyed as far north at times and resources permitted. The commander would then determine his own route west, season permitting. He could survey the Galapagos Islands. Then the Beagle was to proceed to Point Venus, Tahiti, and Port Jackson, Australia, which were known points to verify the chronometers. No time was to be wasted on elaborate drawings. Charts and plans should have notes and simple views of the land as seen from sea showing measured heights of the hills. Continued recordings of tides and meteorological conditions were also required. 
An additional suggestion was for a geological survey of a circular coral atoll in the Pacific Ocean, including its profile and tidal flows, to investigate the formation of such coral reefs. But before we start with Darwin's second voyage, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you the story of the first voyage of MHS Beagle. MHS Beagle was a Cherokee-class 10-gun brig sloop of the British Royal Navy, one of more than 100 ships of this class. The vessel, constructed at a cost of 7,803 pounds, was launched on May 11, 1820, from the Woolrich Dockyard on the River Thames. In July of that year, she took part in a fleet review, celebrating the coronation of King George IV of the United Kingdom. And for that occasion, it is said to have been the first ship to ever sail under the old London Bridge. After that, there was no immediate need for a beagle, so she lay in ordinary, moored afloat, but without masts or rigging. She was then adapted as a survey bark and took part in three expeditions. On the second survey, voyage of the young naturalist Charles Darwin was on board, and his work made Beagle one of the most famous ships in history. On September 27, 1825, the Beagle docked at Woolwich for repairs and fitted out for her new duties at a total cost of 5,913 pounds. Her guns were reduced from 10 cannons to 6, and a mizzen mast was added to improve her maneuverability, thereby changing her from a brig to a bark. Eagle set sail from Plymouth on May 22, 1826, on her first voyage, under the command of Captain Pringle Stokes. The mission was to accompany the larger ship HMS Adventure, survey of Patagonia and Terra del Fugo under the overall command of Australian Captain Philip Parker King, commander and surveyor. Faced with the more difficult part of the survey in the desolate waters of Terra del Fuego, Captain Pringle Stokes fell into a deep depression. At Port Famine on the Strait of Magellan, he locked himself in his cabin for 14 days. Then, after getting overexcited and talking of preparing for the next cruise, he shot himself on August 2, 1828. Following four days of delirium, Stokes recovered slightly, but then his condition deteriorated and he died on August 12, 1828. Captain Parker King then replaced Stokes with the first lieutenant of the Beagle, Lieutenant W.G. Skyring, as commander, 
and both ships sailed to Montevideo. On October 13th, King sailed the Adventure to Rio de Janeiro for retrofitting and provisions. During this work, Rear Admiral Sir Robert Otway, Commander-in-Chief of the South American Station, arrived aboard HMS Ganges and announced his decision that the Beagle was also to be brought to Montevideo for repairs, and he intended to supersede Skyring. When the Beagle arrived, Otway put the ship under the command of his aide, Flag Lieutenant Robert Fitzroy. The previous survey expedition to South America involved HMS Adventure and HMS Beagle under the overall command of Australian Commander Philip Park King. But now, the 26-year-old Fitzroy had hopes of commanding a second expedition to continue the South American survey. But then he heard that the Lord of Admiralty no longer supported this. He grew concerned about how to return the f- to that post. He made an agreement with the owner of a small merchant ship to take himself and five others back to South America. Because during the previous voyage, the 23-year-old aristocrat Fitzroy proved an able commander and meticulous surveyor. In one incident, a group of Fugians stole a ship's boat, and Fitzroy took their families on board as hostages. Eventually, he held two men, a girl and a boy, who were given the name Jemmy Button, and these four native Fugians were taken back with them to England when the Beagle returned on October 14, 1830. He grew concerned how to return the Fugians who had been taught English with the idea that they could become missionaries. He made an agreement with the owner of a small merchant vessel to take himself and five others back to South America, but a kind uncle heard of this and contacted the Admiralty. Soon afterwards, Fitzroy heard that he was to be appointed commander of HMS Chantelassier and go to Terra de Fuego. But due to her poor condition, Beagle was substituted. On June 27, 1831, Fitzroy was commissioned as commander of the voyage, and Lieutenants John Clement Wickham and Bartholomew James Sullivan were appointed. Captain Francis Beaufort, the hydrographer of the Admiralty, was invited to decide on the use that could be made of the voyage to continue the survey, and he discussed with Fitzroy plans for a voyage of several years, including a continuation of a trip around the world to establish meeting distances. The Beagle was commissioned on July 4, 1831, under the command of Captain Robert Fitzroy, who promptly spared no expense in having the Beagle extensively retrofitted. The Beagle was immediately taken into dock for ex- extensive rebuilding and refitting. 
As she required a new deck, Fitzroy had the upper deck raised considerably by 8 inches or 200 millimeters aft and 12 inches or 300 millimeters forward. Why? It was because the Cherokee class brig sloops had the reputation of being coffin brigs, which handled badly and were prone to sinking. By helping the decks to drain more quickly, with less water collecting in the gunnels, the raised deck gave the Beagle better handling and made her less liable to become top-heavy and capitize. Additional sheathing to the hull added about 7 tons to her burthen and perhaps 15 to her displacement. The ship was one of the first to test the lightning conductor invented by William Snow Harris. Fitzroy attained five examples of semismeters, a kind of mercury-free barometer patented by Alexander Addy and favored by Fitzroy as giving the accurate reading required by the Admiralty. In addition to its officers and crew, Beagle carried several passengers without an official position. Fitzroy employed a mathematical instrument maker to maintain his 22 marine chronometers kept in his cabin, as well as engaging the artist draftsman August Earl to go in a private capacity. The three Fuegians taken on the previous voyage were going to be returned to Tierra del Fuego on the Beagle, together with the missionary Richard Matthews. Fitzroy knew that commanding a ship would involve stress and loneliness. He was very aware of the suicide of Captain Stokes, and his own uncle, Viscount Casseray, had committed suicide under stress of overwork as well. For the first time, he would be fully in charge, with no commanding officer or second captain to consult and he felt the need for a gentleman companion who shared his scientific interests and could dine with him as an equal. Early in August, he took these concerns to Beaufort, who had a scientific network of friends at the University of Cambridge. At Beaufort's request, mathematics lecturer George Peacock wrote from London Professor John Stevens Henslow about this rare opportunity for a naturalist, saying that an offer has been made to me to recommend a proper person to go out as a naturalist with his expedition, and suggesting the Reverend Leonard Jennings, though Jennings nearly accepted and even packed his clothes, he had concerns about his obligations as vicar a Swaffham Bullbeck, and his health as well. So, Jennings declined. Henslow then briefly thought of going, but his wife looked so miserable that he quickly dropped the idea. Both recommended the 20-year-old Charles Darwin, 
who had just completed the ordinary Bachelor's of Arts degree, which was a prerequisite for his intended career as a parson, and was on a geology field trip with Adam Sedwick. On August 24th, Henslow wrote to Darwin, That I consider you to be the best qualified person I know of who is likely to undertake such a situation. I state this not on the supposition of years being finished, naturalist, but as amply qualified for collecting, observing, and noting anything worthy to be noted in natural history. Peacock has the appointment at his disposal, and if he cannot find a man willing to take his the office, the opportunity will probably be lost. Captain Fitzroy wants a man, I understand more as a companion than a mere collector, and will not take anyone, however a good naturalist who was not recommended to him, likewise as a gentleman. There never was a finer chance for a man of zeal and spirit. But any modest doubts or fears about your disqualification, for I assure you, I think you are the very man in search of. High praise indeed. The letter then first went to Peacock, who quickly forwarded to Darwin with further details, confirming that the ship sails about the end of September. Peacock had discussed the offer with Beaufort. He entirely approves of it, and you may consider the situation as the absolute disposal. When Darwin returned home late on the August 29th from his geology trip and opened the letters, his father objected strongly to the voyage, so the next day he wrote declining the offer and left to go shooting at the estate of his uncle, Joshua Wedgwood II. With his uncle Joshua's help, Darwin's father was persuaded to relent and fund his son's expedition. And on the next day, Thursday, the 1st of September, Darwin wrote accepting Peacock's offer. That day, Beaufort wrote to tell Fitzroy that his friend Peacock had succeeded in getting a savant for you. A Mr. Darwin, grandson of the well-known philosopher and poet, full of zeal and enterprise and having complimented a voyage of his own account to South America. On Friday, Darwin left for Cambridge, where he spent Saturday with Henslow getting advice on preparations and references to experts. Alexander Charles Wood, an undergraduate whose tutor was Peacock, wrote from Cambridge to his cousin Fitzroy to recommend Darwin. Around midday on Sunday, September 4th, Wood received Fitzroy's response, straightforward and gentlemanlike, but strongly against Darwin joining the expedition. Both Darwin and Henslow then gave up the scheme. Darwin went to London anyway, and next morning met Fitzroy, who explained that he had promised the place to his friend, Mr. Chester. This is probably or possibly the novelist Harry Chester, but Chester had turned it down in a letter received not more than five minutes before Darwin arrived. Fitzroy emphasized the difficulties, including cramped conditions and plain food. Darwin would be on the Admiralty books to get provisions, worth about 40 pounds a year, and, like the ship's officers and captains, would pay 30 pounds a year towards the mess bill. 
including outfitting, the cost to him was likely to reach approximately 500 pounds. The ship would sail on 10 October 10th and would probably be away for three years. They talked and dined together and soon found each other agreeable. The Tory Fitzroy had been cautious of the prospect of companionship with this unknown young gentleman of Whig background and later admitted that his letter to Wood was cold water on the scheme. In a sudden horror of a chances of having somebody he should not like on board. He half seriously said that he nearly rejected Darwin on a phrenological basis that the shape of his nose indicated a lack of determination. While they continued to get acquainted, going shopping together, Darwin rushed around to arrange his supplies and equipment, getting advice from experts on specimens, preservation such as William Yarrell at the Zoological Society of London, Robert Brown at the British Museum, Captain Philip Parker King, who led the first expedition, and invertebrate anatomist Robert Edmund Grant, who had tutored Darwin at Edinburgh. Carl gave an invaluable advice and bargained with shopkeepers, so Darwin paid 50 pounds for two pistols and a rifle, while Fitzroy had spent 400 pounds on firearms. Not a deal. On Sunday, September 11th, Fitzroy and Darwin took the steam packet for Portsmouth. Darwin was not seasick and had a pleasant sail of three days. For the first time, he saw the very small cramped ship, met the officers, and was glad to get a large cabin shared with the assistant surveyor, John Lort Stokes. On Friday, Darwin rushed back to London. 250 miles in 24 hours, and on via Cambridge to arrive in Shrewsbury on September 22nd. That's quick visit to family and friends. Place to the Beagle gave Darwin an extra week to consult experts and complete bagging, packing his baggage. After sending his heavy goods down by steam packet, he took the coach along with Augustus Earl and arrived at Davenport on October 24th. The famous geologist Charles Lyell asked Fitzroy to record observations on geological features such as erratic boulders. Before they left England, Fitzroy gave Darwin a copy of the first volume of Lyell's Principle of Geology, which features as the outcome of gradual processes taking place over extremely long periods of time. It is autobiography. Darwin recalled Henslow giving advice at the time to obtain and study the book, but on no account to accept the views therein advocated. <laughs> the leading Cambridge gentleman of science, opportunity for a naturalist to join the expedition fitted with their drive to revitalize British government policies on science. This elite disdain research done for money 
felt that the natural philosophy was for gentlemen, not tradesmen. Darwin fitted well with these expectations. The officer class of the Army and Navy provided a way to ascend this hierarchy. It was usually the ship's surgeon who collected specimens on voyages, and Robert McCormick had secured this official position on the Beagle after taking part in earlier expeditions and studying natural history. A sizable collection had considerable social value, attracting wide public interest, and McCormick expired to fame as an exploring naturalist. Collections made by the ship's surgeon and other officers were government property, though the Admiralty was not consistent on this and went to important London establishments, usually the British Museum. Darwin's position on board was a self-funded guest with no official appointment, and he could leave the voyage at any suitable stage. At the outset, George Peacock had advised that Admiralty are not disposed to give a salary, though they will furnish you with an official appointment and every accommodation. If a salary should be required, however, I am inclined to think that it would be granted. Far from wanting this, Darwin's concern was to maintain control over his collection. He was even reluctant to be on the Admiralty's books for viticals until he got assurances from Fitzroy and Bufour that he could not be affect his rights to assign his specimens. Darwin did not want his collection to go to the British Museum, as he had heard that the specimens from the first Beagle voyage were still waiting to be described and put on display. Bufour assured him that should he should have no difficulty as long as he presented them to some public body, such as the zoological or geological societies. Darwin himself thought his new finds should go to the largest and most central collection, not the Cambridge Philosophical Society Museum in Henslow, was setting up at Cambridge, but after getting Henslow's willing agreement to take delivery of consignment of specimens, Darwin replied that he had hoped to give some to the Cambridge Museum. The captain had to record his survey in painstaking paperwork. And Darwin, too, kept a daily log as well as detailed notebooks of his finds and speculations. <laughs> and a diary, which became his journal. Darwin's notebooks show a complete professionalism that had probably learned from the University of Edinburgh when he was making natural history notes while exploring the shores of the Firth of Forth. And studying marine invertebrates with Robert Edmund Grant for a few months in 1827. Darwin had also collected beetles at Cambridge, but he was a novice in all other areas of natural history. During the voyage, Darwin investigated small invertebrates while collecting specimens of other creatures for experts to examine and describe once the beagle had returned to England. 
More than half of his carefully organized zoology notes deal with marine invertebrates, and the notes record closely reasoned interpretations of what he found about their complex internal anatomy while dissecting specimens under his microscope, and of little experiments on their response to stimulation. His onshore observations included intense analytical comments on possible reasons for the behavior, distribution, and relation to their environment of the creatures he saw. He made good use of the ship's excellent library of books on natural history, but continually questioned their correctness. Fitzroy's narrative recalls that when the investigating islands on the first voyage, he had regretted that no one on board had expertise in mineralogy or geology to make use of the opportunity of ascertaining the nature of the rocks and earths of the area surveyed and resolved that if on a similar expedition, he would endeavor to carry out a person qualified to examine the land while the officers and myself would attend to hydrography. Although Darwin had studied geology in his second year at Edinburgh, he found it dull. But from Easter to August 1831, he had learned a great deal with Adam Sedwick and developed a strong interest during their geological field trip. Geology was Darwin's principal pursuit on the expedition, and his notes on the subject were almost four times larger than his zoology notes, although he kept extensive records on both. During the voyage, he wrote to his sister that there is nothing like geology. The pleasure of the first day's partridge shooting or the first day's hunting cannot be compared to finding a fine group of fossil bones, which tells the story of former times with almost living tongue. To him, investigating geology brought reasoning into play and gave him opportunities for theorizing. Charles Darwin had been told that the Beagle was expected to sail at the end of September 1831. But fitting out took longer. Admiralty instructions were received on November 14th, and on November 23rd, she was moved to Anchorage, ready to depart. Repeatedly westerly gales caused delays and forced them to turn back after departing the 10th of December and also on the 21st of December. Drunkenness at Christmas lost another day. Finally, on the morning of December 27th, the Beagle left its anchorages at the Barn Pool under Mount Edgecombe on the west side of Plymouth Sound and set out finally on its surveying expedition. The first stop, the Atlantic Islands. The Beagle touched at Madeira for a confirmed positioning without stopping. Then, on January 6th, it reached Terranife in the Canary Islands, but was quarantined because of a cholera epidemic in England. Although tantalizingly near the town of Santa Cruz, 
To Darwin's intense disappointment, they were denied landing. With improving weather conditions, they sailed on. On January 10th, Darwin tried out plankton net he had devised to be towed behind the ship. Only the second recorded use of such a net. The next day, he noted, the great number of animals collected far from land and wrote, Many of these creatures so low in the scale of nature are most exquisite in their form and rich colors. It creates a feeling of wonder that so much beauty should be apparently created for such little purpose. Six days later, they made their first landing at Porto Praia on the volcanic island of St. Jago in the Cape Verde Islands. It is here that Darwin's description of his published journals begins. His initial impression was of a desolate and sterile volcanic island, but after visiting the town he came to a deep valley where he first saw the glory of tropical vegetation and had a glorious day finding overwhelming novelty in the sights and sounds. Fitzroy set up tents and observatory on Quail Island to determine the exact position of the islands, while Darwin collected numerous sea animals, delighting in vivid tropical corals in tidal pools and investigating the ge geology of Quail Island. Though Danbury's book in the Beagle Library described the volcanic geology of the Canary Islands, it said that the structure of the Cape Verde Islands was too imperfectly known. Darwin saw Quail Island as his key to understanding the structure of St. Jago and made careful studies of its stratigraphy in a way that he had learnt from Adam Sedwick on his geological field trip. He collected specimens and described the white layer of hard rock formed from crushed coral and seashells lying between layers of black volcanic rock, and noted a similar white layer running horizontally in the black cliffs of St. Jago at 40 feet, or 12 meters, above sea level. The seashells were, as far as he could tell, the same as those of present day, speculated that the geologically recent times a lava flow had covered this shell sand on the seabed and then strata had slowly risen to the present level. Charles Lyell's Principle of Geology presented a thesis of gradual rising and falling of the Earth's crust illustrated by changing levels of the Temple of Serapis. Darwin implicitly supported Lyell by remarking that Dr. Domini, when mentioning the present state of the Temple of Serapis, doubts the possibility of surface of country being raised without cracking buildings on it. I feel sure at St. Jago, in some places, a town might have been raised without injuring a single house. In a letter to Henslow, Darwin wrote that, The geology was preeminently interesting, and I believe quite new. There are some facts on a large scale of upraised coast that would interest Mr. Lyle. While still on the island, Darwin was inspired to think of writing a book on geology, and later wrote of 
seeing a thing never seen by Lyle, one yet saw it partially. It was customary for the ship's surgeon to take the position of naturalist. And the Beagle surgeon Robert McCormick sought fame and fortune as an explorer. When they first met at the start of the voyage, Darwin had commented that, My friend Mr. McCormick is an ass, but we jog on very very amicably. They walked on to the countryside of St. Jago together, and Darwin, influenced by Lyle, found the surgeon's approach old-fashioned. They found a remarkable baobab tree, which Fitzroy measured and sketched. Darwin went on to subsequent writing expeditions with Benjamin Bynum to visit Ribera Grande and St. Domenico. Fitzroy had extended their stay to 23 days to complete his measurements of magnetism. Darwin subsequently wrote to Henslow that his collecting included several specimens of an octopus which possessed a most marvelous power of changing its colors equaling any chameleon and evidently accommodating the changes to the color of the ground which it passed over yellowish green dark brown and red were prevailing this fact appears to be new as far as I can find out Henslow replied that this fact is not new but any fresh observation will be highly important. McCormick increasingly resented the favors Fitzroy gave to Assistant Darwin with collecting. On February 16th, Fitzroy landed a small party, including himself and Darwin on St. Paul's Rocks, finding the seabirds so tame that they could be killed easily. While an exasperated McCormick was left circling the island in a second small boat. That evening, novices were greeted by a pseudo-Neptune, and in the morning they crossed the equator with the traditional line-crossing ceremony. Darwin had a special position as guest and social equal of the captain. So, junior officers called him Sir, until the captain dubbed Darwin Philos for ship's philosopher, and this became his suitable, respectable nickname. Now on to South America. In South America, the Beagle carried out its survey work, going to and fro to along the coasts, to allow careful measurements and rechecking. Darwin made long journeys inland with traveling companions from the locality. He spent much of the time away from the ship, turned by prearrangement when the Beagle returned to ports, where mail could be received and Darwin's notes, journals, and collections sent back to England. He ensured that his collections were his own and that they were shipped back to Henslow in Cambridge to await his return. Several others on board, including Fitzroy and other officers, were 
able amateur naturalists, and they gave Darwin generous assistance, as well as making collections for the crown, which the Admiralty placed in the British Museum. Due to heavy surf, they only stayed at Fernando de Norona for a day to make the required observations, and Fitzroy decided to make for Bahia, Brazil, to rate the chronometers and to take on water. On February 28th, they reached the continent, arriving at a magnificent site of the town now known as Salvador. Ships at the harbor scattered across the bay. On the next day, Darwin was in transports of pleasure, walking by himself in the tropical forest and in long naturalizing walks, with others continued to add raptures to the formed raptures. He found the sites of slavery offensive, and when Fitzroy defended the practice by describing a visit to a slave owner whose slaves replied no on being asked by their master if they wished to be freed, Darwin suggested that the answers in such circumstances were worthless. Enraged that his words had been questioned, Fitzroy lost his temper and banned Darwin from his company. The officers had nicknamed such outbursts Hot Coffee, and within hours Fitzroy apologized and asked Darwin to remain. Later, Fitzroy had to remain silent when Captain Paget visited them and recounted facts about slavery so revolting that refuted his claim. Surveying of sandbanks around the harbor was completed on March 18th, and the ship made its way down the coast to survey the extent and depths of the Abraholos Reef, completing and correcting Rusin's survey. On April 4th, they entered the harbor of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, to make observations of longitude on Island. Darwin took in the sights of the city, then made an expedition into the interior, returning to the ship on April 24th. By then, Surgeon Robert McCormick had left the ship, from the Admiral in command and returned to England. Assistant Surgeon Benjamin Bino was made acting surgeon in his place. I felt very much disappointed in my expectations of carrying out my natural history pursuits, every obstacle having been placed in the way of my getting on shore and making collections. While the gentleman, Darwin received all the invitations from dignitaries on shore and was given facilities to pack his collections. On April 26, Darwin moved into a house he had rented at Botafogo and stayed there with three others when the Beagle left on May 10th to recheck observations at Bahia. Fitzroy had found a discrepancy of 4 miles or 6.4 kilometers in the median distance of longitude between his measurements and those of Albin Rusin, and decided to go back. A seaman, a ship's boy, and a young midshipman had caught a fever after visiting the Maku River and died. When the ship returned to Rio on June 3rd, 
Fitzroy confirmed that the measurements of Bahia and the Alvaroz reefs were correct and sent these corrections to Rusin. They sailed on July 5th and continued their journey, a journey that would lead them to history. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.